All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona on a beautiful night in Tucson. And we welcome those of you listening to us on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu and watching us live on iTunes U. This is our final lecture for the fall 2013 semester, but I just thought I'd let you know I've already set up our lectures for the coming semester, spring of 2014. Can you believe it? It's going to be 2014 already. Uh, here we go. Our next lecture will be on January the 13th. On January the 13th, Dr. Jared Mayles is going to talk about planets in the habitable zone. That's right. We've got plenty of astronomers here at Stewart Observatory trying to find the next Earth. And that's what he's going to tell you about on January the 13th. And then on January 27th, our own director, he's only been director for a year and a half, Buell Januzzi, he hasn't given me a title yet. So that's to be announced. And I still have to find a speaker for February 10th. Uh, on the week of February 24th, we're not going to have a Monday night lecture because we have the Mark Aronson Memorial Lecture which will be given by Dr. Alish Shapley from the University of California, Los Angeles. On March 10th, we have one of our former alumni. He got his degree here in 1958. Dr. Michael Chris is going to talk about astronomy and the muses. So keep in touch. As well, if you are not on our mailing list, when you leave, we have a little sign-up sheet out there. You can sign up to get on our mailing list and we will mail out blasts whenever we to remind you of our lectures and if there are any changes in the schedule or any other interesting events going on at Stewart Observatory. Also, if you are a student here for an assignment, I will stamp your assignment at the conclusion of question and answer period unless you're in Professor Holberg's class. Professor Holberg is here, I saw him somewhere, and he will take care of you if you are in his class. Finally, at the conclusion of tonight's lectures, as always, the Raymond E. White 21-inch telescope is open for your viewing pleasure. So it's the white building outside, the big white dome. Go in the door, up two flights of stairs. And please, please, if you've never been looking through a big telescope, do it. We also have a camera crew up there that's filming a documentary on Stewart Observatory, and they want to catch a public evening and watch members of the public look through the telescope, as well as Dr. Charlotte Christensen, who is one of our PhD astronomers. She's a postdoc. She's up there as well to do Ask an Astronomer. If you have ever wanted to ask a question of a PhD astronomer, feel free to ask Dr. Christensen when you're up at the telescope. All right, let's get to the lecture for tonight. You know, when I scheduled this back in the summer, uh, everyone was talking about the comet of the century. And I thought, wow, we're going to have a really big, bright comet that everyone can see at Christmas time. Let me get Bea Mueller to come and talk about it, and then I'll pack this place, right? Because everyone will want to know where to look for the comet. Okay, well, that worked out well, didn't it? Many of you have probably been watching the news, but I'm sure that uh, you're still going to learn a lot about this interesting comet, even though it didn't live up to the hype. Um, <laughs> Our speaker tonight is Dr. Beatrice Miller. Dr. Miller received her, why did that go out? Oh, because this went out. Let me just do this. Dr. Miller received her dipom, which is the first degree, at the ATH, the A-T-H in Zurich, Switzerland, 
She's actually Swiss, all right? Okay, yeah, as you can tell from her accent. Now, um, she went to the same school that Einstein did in Zurich. Then she received, and that was a, a diploma in physics. Then she got her astronomy PhD at Bamberg. I know it's the University of Erlangen, Nuremberg, or something like that, but Bamberg is what we know it as. It's outside of Nuremberg. For many, uh, she was a postdoctoral fellow over at the National Optical Astronomy Observatory. You know it better as Kitt Peak Observatory. But now she is with a group, a private group, uh, here in Tucson, you may not know of their existence. They're called the Planetary Science Institute. And it's a group of astronomers that study the solar system and uh, compete for grant money and fund themselves off of the research money that they're able to uh, earn. So without further ado, I will call upon Frau Dr. Beatrice Müller. Okay. Although I'm, I'm actually an American citizen now, but I still have an accent. So if you don't understand any, uh, something, please let me know. And I'm, I'm gratified that still so many people are here, although most of the people probably know what happened um, to, to Comet Ison. So um, everyone can read my outline by themselves. I want to know if anyone's seen Comet Ison in binoculars, naked eye, or through a telescope, but not on the web. Anyone seen it pre-perihelion? Oh, okay, a few people. Great. Uh, any, anyone see, ever seen a comet naked eye? Yeah, okay. Most of you are old enough to have seen uh, comets Hyakutake and Hale-Bob. So two things everyone wants to know about the comet, like did Ison survive closest approach and when and where can I see it, sky and how bright it will be, and you already know the answer if you have not, if you unless you're off the grid and never look at the web. But yes, it's survived, sort of, but not very long. And we're gonna get back to that. And um, the other thing is, what we really would have liked to see is something like this. That um, this is actually Comet Hale-Bob, and it's, uh, sorry, Comet Hyakutake, and taken by my husband, um, Todd Lauer, on Kitt Peak over the four meter. Or if we couldn't see something like this, then we would have liked to see something like this. And this is Comet Lovejoy, not the Comet Lovejoy that is up now. That was in 2011. And beautiful, beautiful tail. So why didn't we see it here? Because unfortunately it was a sudden hemisphere object. But what we're gonna see is the naked eye or even binoculars is gonna be something like this a beautiful starry sky in southern Arizona, but no comet. So, um, sorry to, to disappoint you. I'm gonna back up a little bit, and um, I don't know how much uh, you, know, you remember about, about comets. So, comets are leftovers from the formation of our solar system about four and a half billion years ago. They are stored way out way beyond Jupiter, mostly, most are, some are beyond Neptune, others are even further out, what we call the Oort cloud. It's very cold there, nothing is happening much there. And um, that's what's interesting, they're mostly unchanged because it's cold, not, it, they're, they're not very close together, so 
not much evolution. So that's why we study co uh, comets, because we think these are the most unprocessed, that's the un most unprocessed material we have in the solar system. So we can go sort of like a, a time machine. We would like to know what kind of conditions were during the solar, um, during the formation of our solar system and where the comets were formed. Now, I wanna also say, when, when, when we say comets, most people think comet like something like this, but a comet has, um, is, has more than one part. That's, oh, let me use this, the nucleus. In here, you can't see it. It's just a few miles across or even less, unfortunately, sometimes. Then, a and this is like a few miles across, a coma that's about 100,000 miles, and tails, either gas or dust, sometimes you can see both, or sometimes just um, the dust tail, they get up to like one million miles. And these are, you know, numbers that, that I like to put stuff in relation. So my, my colleague, Nalin Summersing, also from the Planetary Science Institute, he came up with, because we do, we make comets for, uh, in schools for the kids, to, for them to learn about comets. So if you, you ha if you pretend that your nucleus is about the size of a basketball, then the, the coma or the gas, the atmosphere, is about the size of Tucson. But tails could go up up from, you know, from the border up to Canada. So th that's, a, I think that's easier relatable. And I think this is also interesting because it's very different from Earth. If the Earth would be the size of the basketball, our atmosphere is like the thinness of a sheet of paper. So very different um, from comets. But when comets are far away from the sun, when they're stored in the outer solar system, there is just the, nu just the nucleus, no coma, no tail. So there's like icy mud balls or muddy ice balls. They come closer to the sun, um, stuff gets sublimated. That means it goes directly from, from ice or from the solid in, into the gas. And when they even come closer, then it forms a tail due to the um, solarine and radiation pressure. Now I can show you actually some nuclei. And these are, these are real images, they're not Photoshop or anything. And that's because we have been, to, we visited several comets already. And um, this spacecraft, so the nucleus, the first one was Halley. There's about, it's 10 miles long, Cometville 2, the, the roundest one we've seen, Borelli, very elongated, Temple 1, where we not only, when there is a spacecraft, but we had an impactor and we blew a crater into it to, to hope to find out about the interior, and Comet Hartley 2, that was here in, in 20, 2010. What these pictures don't do justice is that this is way, way, way too bright. Comet nuclei are extremely dark. They're darker than the soot you have in your, in your, in your um, when you have a fire. So they're extremely dark. Although I said, you know, you said there is like frozen ice, it's a muddy ice ball. But well, people who are not from Tucson, and if you live in a city and it snows, 
two days later, the snow is not white anymore. So you just need a little bit of dark stuff to, to coat the whole comet really, really black, which is, um, they're so black that only like 4% of the light gets reflected back. So that's a problem when we want to observe them and they're far away from the sun because they're tiny and they're dark. When they come closer to the sun, then the, the gas overwhelms the nucleus and um, we really can't see it very well. Now there is a spot, there is, so most of the comets like Hyakotake or, or, or Hale-Bopp we've seen, they're not sun grazers. There's a special group of comets that are called sun grazers and here is just a, an example how that looks like, not from the ground because sun grazers are called sun grazers because they come very, very close to the sun. And very close means within a few radii, solar radii. So very, very close. So this is from, from the SOHO spacecraft. And we will see more SOHO spacecraft images. And why we like sun grazers is because they're in a very, very different environment than normal comets. They come so close to the sun, it's gonna get so hot, that stuff will get vaporized and boil off that we just cannot see in a comet Hale-Bopp because the, it's too far away from the sun. So we can learn about elements that are in comets we cannot learn from, other, from others. Uh, and for, for the solar astronomers, they're like free test particles. They can be used to probe the solar environment. The problem, of course, is they get close to the sun. You can't point your, you can't point HS, the Hubble Space Telescope at it. You cannot point your four meter or any of your telescopes, even amateur telescopes at the sun. And when we started to have solar the spacecraft that will observe the sun like SOHO and STEREO that are to learn about um, what's going on on the sun, they found that like every three days or so they have, they have, a, they have a sun grazer. So ISON is a sun grazer. So oh, okay, we have one every three days. So what, so what why is ISON so special? The problem is that they're all small and we, we don't see them till they're, in, till they're visible in the, the SOHO spacecraft images. So we don't see them from the ground at all. There is no lead time. They show up one day, two days later, they're, they're gone. They all disintegrate. And most of the sun grazers are related to each other. It's called the so-called Kreutz family because you can, you, you can get, you can orbit, get orbits from, the, from these. And turns out that there was a big comet that came close to the sun, broke up, but didn't disintegrate. So there was just still chunk going back out, coming back in. And we have, most of them are from this, um, from this one comet that come by and, and come back over and over again. But they're so small that we won't see them till they're close to the sun. And none of them survive, ever survive the closest approach to the sun, except there was one. There is always an exception. And that was Comet Lovejoy, 
Larry just saw a picture, but so I put down the official designation because there is a Comet Lovejoy now because Mr. Lovejoy in Australia is a very prolific um, amateur observer and he finds, um, he finds all these um, neat comets. It was discover oh, discovered in, in November and it had the closest approach to sun in December and I, I wrote that down to see we had, there was three weeks when it was discovered less than uh, one AU from the sun, uh, one AU is the distance between the Earth and, and, and the sun. So it was, you know, very close and, it, and three weeks later it had closest approach to the sun. And what happened when it came close, there's an image again from Soho, that's how it looked like when it was just before perihelion or closest approach. And that, when it, that was a few days after. So it came back out and it's still, definitely nobody thought it's gonna survive, but it did, beautiful tail. And then that's what we saw from the ground. And, and unfortunately, again, this was only from the Southern Hemisphere. So he knew that it survived. So then my colleague, Matthew Knight, said, well, we should go observe this with the Hubble Space Telescope. So that's what they did. And there is a red box here where the position is of of the comet. There is nothing there. It's like, what? So he's like, oh my God, we messed up. We got the you know, Hubble Space Telescope time and we messed the pointing up, but it turns out they didn't mess up. This is um, an image from the ground where we can definitely see the tail and that's where the nucleus should be. So that would be right in line. And this is the footprint of, of the, the Hubble, Hubble Space Telescope. Um, field of view, there is nothing there. So Lovejoy did actually not really, it did survive perihelion just for a little bit, but then the nucleus disintegrated. But it already had enough time to put out material that got pushed into the tail. This stuff didn't get, did not evaporate. So it has to go somewhere, so it has to follow and the comet passed. So that's why they saw this, this, beautiful, this beautiful tail. And again, from the ground, you couldn't tell that this didn't have a nucleus. So for ISON, we hoped at least we're gonna see something like this, at least. And this is, a, this is another, an image from the Solar Dynamics Observatory. And this is ex in the extreme ultraviolet. So this is really not, you know, a visible. But what this showed is that there were wiggles. And this, and it was um, from the tail that made wiggles in, um, in the magnetic field. So the magnetic field interacted with the, the comet tail and the comet tail interacts with the magnetic field. And solar astronomers are pleased about that. Again, a free, a free test particle. But we, I'm sure, that is with comet Lovejoy and I showed you that for a reason. And we come back to this. Now, so why is ice on you knew, unusual? I just told you every three days we see a sun grazer. 
well, okay. Ison is a sun grazer. So, also bright comets are not uncommon. That, um, Tom mentioned, yeah, comet of the century. Most astronomers hated that. They did not want the hype, and they were right. But it's supposed to be, you know, I had a chance to be bright. And it was discovered far away from the sun, active. Well, we've seen other comet Hale-Bopp was even further out, and it was active. So that's, that's not unusual. So what's all that big deal about ISON? Well, because we never seen a sun grazer at 6 AU that was active. Actually, we have never seen a sun grazer at 6 AU active or not active. I showed you Lovejoy was discovered at 0.8 AU. So this is like seven times further away. So that was already exciting. It is not a croit, so the, the closest approach to sun is a little bit further away. So it's still a sun grazer, but a little bit further away. That's unusual and also exciting because the further away from the sun, the, the higher the chance you have that you're going to survive. Also, I told you the croits, they're coming back over and over again. The small stuff, because then they disintegrate, they don't come back up from that breakup. This one, it's likely the first pass through our in, in our solar system. So the material has never been touched by heat. This is very exciting for, for commentary scientists because we'd really like to see if there is a difference of stuff that's stored way in the ore cloud or stuff that is closer. So ice that has not been processed and will be boiled off by the sun, that is, as, that is very exciting. And we live in a great time. We have a lot of ground-based telescopes. We have a lot of spacecrafts. We have a lot of space observatories. And we have a lot of people, um, amateur astronomers. They're very serious amateur astronomers. It's not just going up with binocular, but some of them have access to two-meter telescopes or you know, they have CCD cameras. Technology has evolved tremendously. And, and, and so this end, oops. And we had a year lead time, not again, with Lovejoy. It was discovered three weeks later, it was already a perihelion. This was a year away from perihelion when it was discovered. So lots of time to get organized. And for everyone else who is not an amateur or not a professional, it was supposed to be very bright, hence the, the comet of, of the century, which again came from that it was discovered at 6 AU from the sun. It was active. And you know, one data point, yeah, you can extrapolate, but it's a dangerous thing to do. And ISON will not hit the Earth ever, and it will not ever not come brighter than full moon. That was just that was just not. But it, it was repeated over and over. Although we always said, no, please, it's not going to be brighter than the full moon. We hoped it will be. It had a good chance to become a naked eye comet. And that it was always everyone always said if it survives perihelion. So probably most of 
of you know that um, comets are named after their discoverer. Well, there is no Mr. or Mrs. Ison. But I thought, you know, but because we have now a lot of surveys that look and try to find moving objects, there, there is this convention that if a survey finds a moving object and the person who identifies it and identifies it as a comet, not just a moving object, a comet, so a fuzzy moving object, it gets the name of the discoverer. If it's just classified as an, an asteroid, and it later turns out to be a comet, then it will get, then it will get um, the name of, of the survey. Hence, we have, you know, in town, Jim Scotty, who works at Space Watch. So we have Comet Scotty, more than one, but we have a lot of Comet Space Watch as well. And so that's happened um, with um, Vitaly Nevsky and Artyom Novichunok. So ISON is much easier to pronounce. <laughs> But it's an acronym, that's why it's capitalized, and it's because they worked at the International Scientific Optical Network in Russia, and it was it's a 16-inch telescope, so it's not that big, and the official name is C2012S1, and C stands for, it's not a periodic comet, unlikely to come, ever come back, even if it would have survived the perihelion. 2012, obviously, when it was discovered, what year? And then the S stands for second part of September. So, the, so A will be the first part of January, B, second part of January, and one is the first um, object that was discovered at that time. And here's a picture of those guys, and they were, and this picture is all over the web, but it's the only picture I, I could find of them, and this is um, Artyom and this is Vitaly. So it was discovered in September 2012 at 6AU. It had closest approach to Mars on October 1st, the closest approach to Mercury, November 19th. Um, closest approach means it didn't come, you know, it was no, there was no way it's gonna hit them. There was just, that's when, when it, it crossed their orbits. But it was, came closer to these two than it was supposed to, to, to come to Earth. Also, we have spacecraft around Mars and around Mercury. And this was a good opportunity to practice because next year there is Comet Sighting Springs. It, um, it will fly by Mars close enough that Mars will be inside the coma. So that's gonna be very interesting. It has some of the Mars people um, a little bit nervous. I wanted it to hit Mars because that would, we've never seen a comet hit a terrestrial planet. I don't want it to hit the Earth or the Moon, but, and I didn't want it to destroy, destroy Mars, but it would have been really neat to see make it a crater. But of everyone, of course, the rover people wouldn't be happy about that. And I had closest approach to the sun on Thanksgiving day and closest approach to the Earth would have been on Boxing Day, one day after Christmas, hence also the Christmas comet, but it's not, unfortunately. 
And uh, this is a neat graphic that shows like closest approach to the sun. So this is sun, that's how close I sun would get, about two and a half solar radii from the center. But from, from the surface, it's less or about a solar diameter. So really, really, really close. And of course, you wouldn't see the dots. So these, these dimensions are not correct. Also, uh, another sort of a local angle. Once the comet was discovered in September, that, you know, we have two or three days, immediately people start getting an orbit. You can, um, and then they go look backwards and say, oh, it should have been in that part of the sky at that time. And then people look through, through the images they had from the surveys. And they actually found a pre-discovery image from 2011, almost from a year earlier in the Catalina Sky Survey right here on Mount Lemmon and another one in Pan Stars in, in Hawaii. But it was not recognized as a moving object at that time. Oh, this, is a, this is now a simulation of ISON's orbit. I think this is, really shows how ISON comes in, goes by Mars, Earth, Mercury, and see how fast it goes around the sun when it gets there. And yeah, we can't stop it because that's unfortunately not. It would have been the past, but do you want to see that again? Yes. Okay. <laughs> if I can figure it out. Oh, no. So bear with me. I haven't tried that. Okay, now. And also, you, you can see that it is not in the plane of the planets. It is above the plane, and it, now it comes below, and it comes below Mercury's orbit, and I go really fast around the sun. So, because we had such a long lead time, everyone could try to observe this comet. Unfortunately, it was really not nicely placed for, for ground-based observations. So we had, you could get it, people have seen it before perihelion. It was like, you know, half an hour, an hour before, an hour or two before sunrise, so in twilight. So if you want to do time studies, what's going on with the Tacoma, and you only have two hours a night, that is really hard to do. But again, you know, uh, social media and electronic mail and a, a year lead time, people started planning and people started co collaborating between professionals and amateurs. So if you have, you know, if you have observatories all around the world and even if you just get every two hours, you get two hours a different time in Hawaii, two hours a different time in California. So that's um, what actually has been done. We, we did a, a website, there is a Facebook page where people could come and were interested on in contributing images or data to what we call the ISON campaign. I think what's really neat is 
all these, I think we never ever had so many spacecraft and space observatories available for observations. Mo a lot of them are like messenger is spacecraft around Mercury. It's not made to observe comets. Also MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, is not made to observe comets. But they all contributed. They all said, this is interesting. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where we have all these spacecraft. We, we, we throw everything we can at this comet. Now I have some real data. These are not, again, this is not, and this is from my colleague, uh, Matthew Knight. This is the comet in January 2013. So you can see it's a little bit fuzzy compared to your other stuff, but it's not much to look at. Then it starts to develop a symmetry or a tail. And this doesn't mean it turned around. It's just a different part of the sky. In, by September 30th, the definite looks like a comet. It's a tail. October 27th, beautiful. Probably a lot of people have seen that with the green hue in there. It's just because of the, the material that has been coming out, this carbon-2 that, that's in the green. And then November 15, about two weeks before perihelion. Structures in the tail. And this was the, th these images were taken um, just with an eight inch. So it, it looked very promising, but every time the comet didn't follow what people thought it should do, then there was all kind of chatter. Oh, it's gonna it, it already broke up, or oh my gosh, it's gonna be a dud, or no, it's gonna be brighter. So and there is, is this saying, like, comets are like cats. They have tails, but they do whatever they want. So an ISON has really surprised us. But ISON not, didn't just have dust, it also had gas. And these images were taken at the same time. This is a dust image, well, right after each other. And this is a gas image. And you can, can see that this is very, very different. And these images are taken at the Discovery Telescope in Arizona at Lowell Observatory. So again, sort of a local angle. We've talked about um, the spacecraft uh, images. One thing we really, really, really wanted to know is how big is the nucleus. When it was discovered, it was at 6 AU. It was already active. We, it's, there was no way we, can, we could see the nucleus. But we have um, Hubble Space Telescope has a very, very high resolution. Would not be able to resolve the comet nucleus. But if it's sharp enough, you can sort of see what the coma does, and then you can get, a, um, you can get an upper limit. And that's what they did at, um, at the beginning in April. 2013, and they got, it said diameter is, has to be less than about three miles. Then when it flew by Mars, it doesn't look like anything, but it was a little bit fainter than we thought it would be, but it was good for us because they got a better estimate about a mile. And then 
that made people nervous who did, who made simulations of if the comet would survive or not. So, and it was exactly so that one mile diameter where they couldn't tell. If it's much smaller, definitely it's gonna break up or disintegrate if it's um, bigger, it will survive. So one mile was really the bad spot. But it's not only, not only depends on the size of the nucleus because it's, it came so close to the sun that um, the tidal forces will definitely have an effect. So if something is round, round, tidal forces have less effect than if something is elongated like a cigar, something like that. Also, the bigger the nucleus, um, material, material gets burned off. If you're like, you know, three solar radii away from the sun, material is gonna get burned off. But the bigger you are, you know, then you, you can survive better if, if the same amount of material gets uh, blown off and if you're, you know, if you have, have a marble and, or you have a basketball, you do better as a basketball. Also what we were interested in is what's going on in the coma? Is it just smooth or is there structure? Because when there's structure in the coma, that gives us information about if there is material that doesn't come just out up everywhere from the comet, but just on what we call active areas, like jets or something like that. And although you can use that, if you can observe these features move, you can use that to get the rotation of the comet. I personally was very interested in the rotation of the comet because um, I study rotation of the comet. And the comet will come so close to the sun that its rotation will be totally different afterwards because it's gonna get messed up because the activity goes through the roof and it's losing mass. So its inertia will be very different. And because you, what you ideally would like to do is look at the nucleus and because when it rotates and if it's not round, which most comets are not, if it's elongated and the reflected light comes back, if you look at it like this, you get more light reflected than when you look at it this. But with a comet that's already active at 6 AU and comes close to the sun, there's no way we can do it this way. So we have to use the coma structures and we have been very successful in doing that for, for other comets. So we were very excited when HST showed that it doesn't, not only had the tail that was expected, but it had structure towards the sun is over here, towards the sun. So we thought, oh yeah, we can, we can do that too. And we actually had some ground-based images that showed that structure too. But then again, because we only had about an hour a day, we looked at others, it didn't seem to move much. And then the comet went behind the sun, which I mean behind the sun, not physically, but just in the sky. You can be far, if I'm here, the sun is here, and the comet is on the other side, it can be far away, but I can't see through, see through the sun. So it went, so we couldn't observe it from the ground. And when it came back out, this feature was gone. And it was really, really 
bland comet, which was um, for, for coma structure, which was uh, a little bit disappointing for us. And I just put that in because I thought that was really neat. This is an image from Messenger on November 20th, just uh, a week before perihelion. Messenger, again, it's the, the spacecraft around um, Mars, uh, sorry, Mercury. And again, this took a lot of planning because you're not, you, you don't just go a day before and say, oh, by the way, turn your spacecraft, we would like to observe a comet. They're optimized for observing the planets. So it was, sorry, really nice that um, they actually got it. And I don't think they have totally analyzed stuff yet. Another thing that was very interesting is that a lot of stuff as soon as it was observed, especially from the solar, um, the SOHO um, satellite that observes the sun, this stuff was made public almost immediately. Nobody hoarded the data. Everyone put it out and, and everyone made movies right away for, for everyone to see. And that's what I'm gonna show you next. That's, there is a timestamp on it and the comet is over here coming in that's a day before closest approach to the sun comes. It's still doing great. It's even so bright it's sat saturated. We wanted that, we wanted it to be bright. Then it went, so actually this is the sun, the white, and then it came back out, but oh, it looks very different. And it's getting fainter and fainter and fainter, and these are solar mass ejections, so. And it's even fainter, and it's almost gone. And it gets, so that, that was yesterday. Yes, let's see if I can. Oh, okay. So it was, we were still happy how it, it behaved. It was what, what's expected, came out. And this is the, what we call the coronagraph. We have to blot out the sun, otherwise we won't see anything. And then when it went, oh, sorry. When it went behind, or start again, when it went behind this, people already said it is dead, and I tell you why. You remember that image I showed you, that brownish-yellow image with the wiggling lines that was from the Solar Dynamics Observatory? They didn't see anything. And it's still not quite clear why not. That's something that we'll have to investigate. Why didn't they see anything? So that's why it was declared dead and then someone said, hey, 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 wait, there's something is still there, it survived. But then it was like, uh, no, actually, it didn't survive. You remember the, the, the picture of Lovejoy where he came back out. So this is very different. And this is just, again, that's just the debris that's left over when it was still, when it was around, you know, before it went in here, it ejected stuff that didn't get burned off. It has to follow the comet's path. But uh, people already did modeling and they are sure that the, this, the, 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 the structure we saw is not new dust, it's old dust. So that stuff that is, was just left over, 
and it's going to get fainter and fainter and just eventually you know, go away. Now I want to show, uh, this is just from another spacecraft. It's called Stereo. And that was about the same time, um, you have to believe it's here. There was still something there. They have um, a time-lapse movie, sort of, and you can see it move. That's why, you know, um, it's there. But again, it's, uh, it's um, way, way, way too faint. So and there is the official <laughs> obituary of, of ISON. And when, when Carl Adams says there is no visible nucleus, it's dead, Carl has been um, studying sun grazers for decades. And I heard him uh, say a lot in interviews and stuff, wow, I've never seen a sun grazer like that. I've never seen data like that. So ISON was definitely obviously a surprise and, and, um, and, and different. So was ISON a waste of time? Of course not. Uh, it's still scientifically, was, it was not a total dis, um, disappointment from, a prof you know, from, from my point of view, definitely not. Because you'll have a lot of data to analyze because the data have, has been put out as fast as possible, but there is still much more where we can go back and look carefully, especially at the images we saw at SDO, why didn't they see anything? Can they explain it? That will then give clues of what happened. How did it disintegrate? We had incredible collaboration with, with amateurs and professionals. We had, uh, we had you know, wonderful the public was very interested. The, my colleague was on Kid Peak during um, Thanksgiving, trying to observe the comet. They had like three or four TV crews, one, one even from Japan. So this comet really captured the imagination of, of uh, the people. Right. From an academic observer point of view, well, yes, it's a disappointment. We wanted another. Um, and an, another great comet. There was always warning that's like, don't type it up. Uh, remember comet Kohutek that also was, it's like, oh, it's gonna be the brightest comet ever, and then it, it fizzled. And this one was always a danger that it's a sun grazer. Most of them don't survive. The only one we've ever seen, doesn't mean that there were not others before we had all the spacecraft, was, um, was a comet uh, Lovejoy, and then in earlier times there was, I think, a great comet of 1860. And ISON has already inspired people, not just professional or, or for, for, for um, observations. I had, uh, we did a campaign to get coma images from, from anyone who would be interested to collaborate with us, and we had one amateur um, that provided images, and he sent me an email about four hours ago saying, oh, I want to tell you a little story. He went to Alaska uh, with his wife, and he saw 
sort of uh, a sculpture. He thought that this artist, he was very interested and thought it was great. So he started to learn about the artist and started to collect stuff from this artist. What, you know, he said, what I could afford. And then he was, because he was, he's a comet observer, an amateur, and he was inspired by ISA. And she, she said, wow, you know, I wonder if it, I'd like to see a sculpture of how our ancestors, how that would look like if a comet would come behind, behind a mountain for the first time, a bright comet, what our, you know, our ancestors might have thought about it. And he tried to communicate with the, with the artist and he hasn't heard back. And then I think maybe a week ago or a few days ago, he heard that, oh, by the way, yeah, your idea, that the artist really liked the idea and he made a sculpture and he got first bid to buy it. You know, you don't have to. And so I thought I'm gonna show it and I thought, wow, this is pretty fitting, although we don't get to see a thing like that. I thought that was, that was really cool. So here's the comet, the mammoths, the, the, and the artist is Eddie Lee in Seattle. So if you um, Google him, you will find stuff. He's known for sort of, for this kind of sculptures. And this design idea was Mike Holloway. He's the um, our amateur observer. But I thought, this is really, it's really cool. So it's not just science, and, but also art and inspires people. And that's it. I have no idea. Thank you so much, Bea. We have time for questions. In fact, plenty of time for questions. So I'll bring up the lights. And any questions for Dr. Miller? No. No questions? No? Oh, yeah. Yes, hold on. I'm going to ask you to talk into the microphone because we are podcasting this uh, lecture. I was just wondering how fast uh, did the comet, how fast comet Ison was moving? Oh, that's actually, that's a, that's a really good question. And that was asked on a, on a Google Hangout too. And at perihelion, the answer was about 0.2% of the speed of light. So uh, yeah, pretty fast. And you could see from the simulation that it really is just like whips by. But I'm glad I listened to that podcast. <laughs> you have a question here? Yes, and then I'll get to you. Um, some of the, the meteor showers that we encounter every now and then, I think it's because the Earth passes through the, um, you know, the Earth pass orbits through the, like, the tail of a comet. So I was wondering if there might be any increase of meteors. But that's also a good, a good question. It's not actually the tail of the comet, but it's the, the orbit. And comets shed also bigger particles. There are what we call trails. And, that, and that's true that all the, the meteor showers are from comets, but the meteorites we pick up, they're all from from asteroids. And we will go through um, the orbit, and it's a, it will be, I think, in January. But the prediction is that maybe you get a few more, but you will probably not notice. We don't know what would have happened if it would have survived and be really, really active. But the prediction was probably won't notice that there are a few more. We have a question up here. 
Is there any significant increase in acceleration with the loss of mass? Like, as it's burning up, getting smaller, does it increase in velocity, or is that just because it's uh, going through the sun's orbit? No, it's it, it's it doesn't pretty constant. Too much. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, we have one over here. What is the mechanism for forming the tails? Oh, that's, a, that's also a good question. It's like, so we get, we get the coma because, you know, there, is, it, there are ices and they, they get evaporated, but then, or, or it sublimates. But when it gets closer to the, to the sun, then the dust tail will be formed, the, the particles get pushed back away from the sun through the radiation pressure. And the gas tail, it's, you know, we say gas, but they're all ions, so it's ionized gas. And that gets um, influenced by, by, by the solar wind, that means the magnetic, the magnetic field. And then, so it follows the magnetic field line, so it gets pushed back through that. But, so that's why when a comet is further away from the sun, you might still have a coma, but you don't have a tail yet because the solar wind is not strong enough out there and um, the magnetic field doesn't, Again, also not. So it has to be come close enough to the sun that it can do that. We have another question here. Now, have you learned anything about the composition of the comet? And if so, oh, yes. uh, how does it compare with other comets? So far, um, nothing special. Sort of, unfortunately, what is expected. We hope that we might get more information when it got closer and brighter, if it would have been very bright, that we could have what we would have been really interested is the, the hydrogen to deuterium ratio. But that's probably not gonna happen. And also, I don't know if, this, um, if they got any information about what kind of um, metals have been burned off, because I haven't seen these data yet. Again, you know, perihelion was just a few days ago. But the composition, as we know, so far seems not really remarkable. All right. Ah. Why didn't you raise your hand when I was back there? <laughs> Say it very loudly, please. Uh, what have they learned about the dynamics of the sun regarding this particular comet? What have they learned about the dynamics of the sun regarding this particular comet? Too early to tell. I mean, they, they put the stuff out as fast as possible. But again, the Solar Dynamics Observatory at first glance, they didn't see anything, so they might not have learned anything. But also, SOHO has um, stuff, and they might be able to look closer. Then, uh, you know, we have to go back and, and look at the data now more carefully because we know what happened, so we can go back and say, oh, okay, can we see, you know, um, how the brightness changed? Can that tell us? You know, in the images, you just make them that they look pretty, but there is, there is definitely more, much more science in there. But you have to go process the data, be more careful. But I thought it was incredible that everyone just put out their ideas, put out the data, that, that everyone could go download the video and, and, and see something like that. I thought that was, that was you know, data from, from yesterday. What other science can you think of that immediately goes to the public and the public has a real appetite for it. That's what's one of the th exciting things that I like about astronomy. All right, I would like to remind you again that our next lecture will be on January the 13th, Monday night. There's no basketball game. 
So there should be plenty of parking, and it will be a search for habitable worlds. Now, if you've never looked through the 21-inch telescope, I invite you to go over to the observatory and talk to Dr. Christensen, look through the telescope, and uh, it's open for your observing pleasure. I'll stamp assignments down here. Let's thank Dr. Mueller one more time.